Welcome to this very special episode of the Lady Brains Podcast. It is our 100th episode. We've been on the airwaves since June 2018, which is crazy and makes me feel very old. But we thought for our 100th episode, we'd curate our favourite moments so far. There's been a lot. There's been laughter, there have been tears, big scoops, crazy stories. We've literally seen it all. And whether you've been listening since the very first episode four and a half years ago or whether you're just tuning in for the first time today, we want to say thank you. Thank you so much for your support and loyalty. We would not be here without you. So we thought that it was only fitting we kick off our 100th episode by going all the way back to the beginning which is our first episode with author and activist Cleo Waite. So I'm going to set the scene. We were in Sydney at the time. Cleo uh, is from New York and she was in Australia for the Sydney Writers Festival. And we managed to land the only podcast interview with her at that time, which was super, super exciting. We were at the Old Clare Hotel in Sydney and we were in an empty room upstairs. The sun was setting. We had a bottle of rosé. She was dressed head to toe Gucci. And it was just a really awesome time. She's such a beautiful, beautiful person. So in this clip, Cleo talks about feeling random, a bit like an imposter, wherever she goes. But she manages to always show up and she manages to always do the work. And in my journey as a younger woman, because I took so many, I mean, I don't even think I took the road less traveled. I I really at times feel like I grabbed the machete and cut the road that I had to travel. Mm. I moved to New York when I was 17. I skipped college. I worked doing the worst jobs on the planet that I was horrible at, but I had this really amazing work ethic. Like I never gave up. I always showed up and was never afraid to be myself in any room. And I think that that's because I had to learn so quickly that I couldn't be afraid. I didn't have the luxury of being afraid to show up uh, as my myself. And I think even in my work now, I, I constantly find myself in rooms where I'm like, you know, I'll be at the plan. I gave the keynote at the Planned Parenthood conference a couple, like a week ago. And I'm just like, I feel so random in here. <laughs> or I'll be sitting at a, you know, a table, you know, organizing for Hillary Clinton's campaign and feel like I'm so random here. Or I spoke at Harvard last week and I feel so random there. Or even at the writer's conference, I feel so random here. I mean, I actually never quite feel because I think that so many of the things that I love and enjoy are intersect with so many different things that I'm interested in or feel passionately about or feel morally called on to take on that I actually feel random everywhere I go. And I think learning at a, such a young age in my social circumstances that you're going to feel random and you've <laughs> just got to make the best of it and do it anyway and show up anyway, I think was game changing. Another guest who absolutely loves putting herself in situations where she feels random and a bit out of her comfort zone is Joe Horgan. She is the founder of Beauty Retailer Mecca and she is probably our top episode of all time. And this was a really personal interview for us. Joe was actually my boss at Mecca. I worked really closely with her and it was amazing to be able to really share the way that she thinks and approaches things to our audience of beautiful listeners, you. Mm-hmm. And so we were recording this at Mecca after a few cancellations. I think it was about two years that we uh, that it took for long us to lead actually time. get... Yeah, long lead time. It took us forever to get this interview. But we were surrounded by product in the new brands room and we had 50 minutes before she ran off to her next meeting and this was the beautiful conversation we had. This clip is a real insight into her mindset and the way that she loves to approach business and rejection as a game. I spent over $10,000 on phone calls, which 
there's a lot of phone calls back then yes. and a lot of money um, because there was no internet. So I literally went overseas, looked at all the brands in all of the different environments. I had a list of 50 or 60 brands, which I cut down to 20 brands, which I went, okay, if I get five of these brands, I feel I have enough to start. I then literally went to counters and said to people, hi, can you please give me the number of your head office? Or I would go to product and on the back of the product, there would be an address, not a website, an address. address. So then you literally go to the yellow pages, the white pages, you connect with buyers. I I went to Cosmoprof. I literally used any and every angle that I could. And that was just to get the details. And so I wrote my letter, sent my letter, often by fax, if I could get the fax number. And then I rang and I rang. And I rang and I rang and I rang. And yeah, do you know what? There are serendipitous moments mm. when three or four times someone would pick up and I was able to start a conversation to at least get my foot through the door. Then there were brands like NARS where I actually made it a daily sport to see how many times I could be ignored. <laughs> you know, literally I have sort of, I think I hold the record in being ignored more than anybody else. And so I would ring and I would stay up all night, every night, because, you know, America is yeah. on a yeah. different time frame. And I would ring on the hour, every hour. And I'd say, hi, this is Joe calling from Mecca Cosmetica. I'd love to have a chat about, you know, Australia. And I'd do the same thing an hour later. Hi, so sorry to bother you again. We'd love to have a chat. And two, you know, two examples of that. So NARS, when I finally got to meet them, again, I met this, you know, the CEO and the head of um, sales and they told me later, they went, oh my God, the only reason we even saw you is we just felt so sorry for you. <laughs> Do you know, you were so we were polite. <laughs> well, no, no, that was sorry for me. Stila said to me, "Do you know what, you just... our entire answering machine was just you. So we just had to stop that happening. So that just gives you two examples. And then I'll give you one other example. Philosophy at the time, um, I had a serendipitous moment with them and I did get to speak to them. Mm. Tick, tick, tick. And then Oprah went on to her show and said, this Hope in a Jar is my favourite product and you've all got one under your seat. Mm. And basically... Their answering machine was filled with six weeks' worth of messages. So uh, they didn't get to my message. And so they went literally down a rabbit hole and I couldn't get in contact with them for about three months. So moments like that when people are not answering your call or returning your calls, Mm -hmm. does self-doubt ever creep in? And how do you overcome those moments of self-doubt? To that point, I think... I just said it to you in, uh, I make everything into a sport. And so I go, I am going to find a way and it may kill me or you in the process, (laughs) but I'm hoping that one of us will break prior and I'm hoping it'll be you. And that's the way I approach everything. It's a game. It's a sport. And I 
truly think I am the best at being rejected. I think I deserve the gold medal in rejection. Another guest who showcases the same level of tenacity and determination is our all-time fave, Hannah Spilver, founder of flower and gift delivery company, Lovely. Since we spoke with Hannah in 2020, she's actually gone on to sell Lovely for $35 million. So a massive congratulations to Hannah. She's also just a legend and a really lovely human being. Part of the growth of the Lovely business was actually driven by figuring out how to send flowers in the mail. By being able to do this, they were able to open up their serviceable market from just capital cities to the entire country. So in this clip, you'll hear exactly how Hannah and her team took a really forward thinking and innovative approach to figure out how to send perishable product flowers in a glass jar with water through the Australian postal system. And one of the biggest challenges in scaling our business when you're dealing with a perishable product is how can we get national reach. So how can we get our product out to people that live anywhere in Australia without having to fall back on the sort of traditional order gatherer business model that has dominated the market for so long? And I'll never forget a conversation we were having with one of our business advisors. This is probably, I don't know, we were maybe 18 months, two years into the lovely journey. And he was kind of challenging us on how are we going to build this business model so that we can get national reach without having a complicated network of third-party providers that we need to rely on across mm. Australia to get the product out? And I think I just made a flippant remark about, oh, it just it'd be so much easier if we could just send the flowers through the mail. And mm. he sort of, I remember him looking at me and saying, well, could you? Is that is that so ridiculous? Could you figure that out? And it was it was this sort of moment in time that sparked a series of events where we actually started to say to ourselves, well, maybe that isn't such a ridiculous thing to consider. Maybe we could actually look at the mainstream postal network as a facilitator for getting our product out to people. So what we then went about doing was some customer research to see how, how can we deconstruct our product in a way that makes it easier to send via the mail. So for anybody that's received a lovely product, one of our sort of trademark things about our experience is all our flowers come in a lovely branded glass jar, which you can personalize. And that's great because it means the flowers literally arrive in water, ready to sit on your desk, your doorstep, your kitchen table, whatever. Clearly that poses an enormous challenge when you're looking at sending something through the mail because you've got flowers which are inherently delicate and perishable and they have a short shelf life. You've got a glass jar which can break during transit and it's full of water. Yeah. So the trifecta. This, this the trifecta. sounds like a nightmare. It's, yeah. the trifect, it's the trifecta of problems. <laughs> so we engaged our customers and to help us solve this problem. And the first thing we sort of looked at was, well, okay, how do we how do we make this slightly less problematic? Can we get rid of the glass jar? Because if we get rid of the glass jar, it gets rid of the water. And our customers came back with a resounding, no, you can't get rid of the glass <laughs> jar. We love the glass jar. It's a USP. You can personalize them. It's got to stay. So what we actually did was we engaged with a series of experts around the world. We worked with uh, floristry experts in Holland who had developed a product which would keep flowers hydrated in transit for up to five days but without water. 
So the first thing was, how do we keep the flowers alive if they're going to be in the mail? And working with these guys in Holland, we felt pretty confident that we'd found a good solution to that. The second thing was, how do we create packaging that's going to keep the flowers and the glass safe um, whilst it's being, you know, potentially thrown around in the mail? So we took inspiration from outside of our category because we're in we're in gifting. We knew that unboxing experience was going to be really important. So we looked outside to other businesses and brands who did packaging really well. And you can't really you can't really go through that exercise without looking at Apple and what they're doing and the experience of unboxing a new iPhone or a new laptop. So we did a lot of research around how, how they develop their packaging. And I discovered there was such a thing as a box engineer, of which Apple employ many of. We clearly so couldn't, we, we couldn't afford to hire a box engineer. But I did find a cardboard <laughs> manufacturing company in Melbourne who, hired a, who had a box engineer. Brilliant. And we oh, connected with them. And we literally had this sort of surreal meeting where we rocked up with fresh flowers in a glass jar in one hand and an iPhone box in the other <laughs> and this scrappy little sketch that I'd put together saying so we're kind of thinking about sending flowers through the mail and we really like the apple unboxing experience can you create something for us that's going to work and and they actually didn't laugh at us they were really intrigued and engaged by the problem we were trying to solve so they built us a prototype um, a, a custom-made box that was uh, purpose-built to fit our products to keep them safe. And then we engaged a pretty small number of customers. So we worked with 20 customers across Australia to say, we are going to try creating a product that allows us to ship flowers through the mail. We have got no idea if it's going to work, but will you come on this journey with us? And we literally shipped flowers through the mail to these 20 customers over a 12-week period. We did it over and over again every week. Mm-hmm. Got their feedback on, you know, firstly, did the flowers arrive? Yes, that's <laughs> yes. a good start. <laughs> were, were the flowers alive when they arrived? Yes, great. <laughs> Two ticks. <laughs> but but really, uh, you, you know, worked with our customers to optimise and iterate the solution over a 12-week mm. period. We did things like, you know, at, at this time we were working in a co-working space and we we're on the third floor, so we'd go right up to the top of the stairs and we'd we'd throw the box with the flowers oh and the God. jar in from, <laughs> from the top flight of stairs <laughs> right down to the ground to, to see what happened because we, we, was, we were so determined to make sure that, you know, the experience for customers when these flowers arrived on the doorstep, no matter how much they'd been thrown around in transport, if indeed that was what happened, mm. um, we wanted to make sure that the the product was still great and the integrity of the, the experience wasn't damaged. So it actually only took us about 12 weeks to get to a point where we felt really confident that we had something we could roll out. We did. And it was at that point, once we rolled it out and we got some volume behind the national offering that we were able to test um, test. I guess, from more of a quant perspective than a qual. Like Hannah, there are times when you take a personal or a professional risk and it pays off. But then there are also times when things simply don't go to plan and you may experience failure. This leads us to one of our most powerful episodes with Jodie Fox. She is the co-founder of Shoes of Prey, which is a made-to-order shoe brand. Her venture-backed business failed in a very public way. As founders, so many of us 
ask ourselves this question, what if it doesn't work? What will happen to me? What will happen to the business? And Jody lived that what if. And in this clip, she shares her story. You asked yourself a really um, thoughtful question before you quit your job to make uh, this a full-time mm. gig, before you went full-time on Shoes of Prey. What if I lose everything? It's definitely a question that I think all entrepreneurs ask themselves, what if I lose everything? And I guess you lived that, that what if. Yeah. Um, oh, God. <laughs> was it worth it? What did you learn? Yeah. Look, um, I think about that a lot, particularly at the moment. Um, and I actually get quite emotional. And the reason is so many business owners, entrepreneurs have had to look directly in the face of that in these last couple of months. And, um, yeah, even going to like my local coffee store to, you know, have a coffee handed out the window or whatever it is, you know, and just my heart was, has been breaking seeing all of this happen. And I think we're in an exceptional situation in Australia where the kind of support that we've seen from the government has helped that not to be as bad as it could be. Um, but there is still a sense of, uh, there's still a very confronting um, economic suffering and question marks, uh, sitting around for a lot of businesses that we won't know the answer to until we know when things like JobKeeper are going to finish or continue or how, um, childcare is going to operate and all that kind of stuff. So, um, that I think a lot of people have really had, had to sit in that experience in the last couple of months, which, um, is truly frightening. Um, the, what if I lose everything, um, is really scary. And when I experienced the closure of the business, the things that that meant was obviously financially, uh, you know, like I had put everything into shoes of prey. <laughs> so it wasn't like I snuck away with this great amount of money or anything like that. You know, I just had my savings from my salary like anyone does. And then I guess, you know, the lose everything, I was really frightened about what people thought about me embarrassed. Um, so I'd really lost my identity in a huge, in a really big way. Um, yeah, financially, I, there was, there was a lot that was gone, um, from, you know, I was, I'd moved to the U S you know, I was like, is this home? Like, you know, <laughs> you know, it really, um, I don't know if I can really put words around it, what it then drove for me was this really big process of, um, firstly, I just wanted to be occupied because my brain was doing that really great thing where it, um, latches when you have a quiet moment, it latches onto something and really digs a big rabbit hole into it. And it's not a positive direction. So for me, it was just cleaning everything top to toe in my apartment, watching the Sopranos from start to finish, um, <laughs> kind of, you know, trying to, make sure that everything had landed in the right place in terms of, um, being really responsible to our shareholders, to our customers with, um, you know, to making sure that the right people were appointed to the company and all that kind of thing. So it was very, um, it was, yeah, it was about just keeping super busy today. The way that the losing everything manifests is it's, it's definitely still really scary. And I do think there's some little, triggers that still exist in there. And I can only imagine what that must feel like for someone who's gone through, um, something even more traumatic than, you know, in business, 
Um, because, you know, I, I imagine this is kind of like what a PTSD thing would feel like. So yeah, it's, it's still, it still lingers. And, um, I think you were lovely and complimentary at the beginning of the interview to be like, okay, you're on the other side of this thing, but you mm-hmm. actually carry it with you. Mm-hmm. And my hope is to be able to use that to, um, you know, really harness that deeper empathy and sharper analytical view of what happens and how things happen uh, to go forward into the next thing. Naturally, the theme of failure has threaded its way through many of our episodes. And what we've come to learn and experience for ourselves is that failure and experiencing these big challenges is the rule rather than the exception. Failing is a critical part of growing. In this next clip, we are chatting to the one and only Kate Morris. She's the founder of Adore Beauty. She has also exited the business since we spoke to her. And she has had many hard and testing moments throughout her journey, including this one, where she shares the story of crying in the Adore Beauty car park. I mean, there are at least a couple of times where I I remember um, James sort of motioning to me with her head because we were we were in this open plan office and so we couldn't have the conversation there and he'd sort of do these ones and and go you know like meet me out in the car in the car park and we go and sit in the car park and he's like I think we've run out of money I think we're going to run out of money I don't think we're going to make payroll next week and we'd sit in the car and cry for a bit and then we'd go okay come on what can we do what can we do like let's just let's just pull something out and so it was always okay right can we um can we, you know, is there a promotion that we could run? Is there, um, what about if we do like a reactivation campaign to anyone who hasn't bought something in six months? Like, can we just, you know, try something um, and always manage to skate through somehow? But yeah, it was um, just feeling constantly nauseous all of the time. <laughs> um, the turning point was actually getting the deal done with Woolies and yeah. then having cash in the bank account for the first time. And that was like, change gears and hear from one of our favorite people in the world, our beautiful friend, Maeva Heim. She's the founder of Bread Beauty Supply, a brand that's raised millions of dollars in funding and secured Sephora USA as a retail partner before she'd even launched the brand. It's pretty unheard of. Mm. In this clip, you will hear how Maeva basically stalked the category manager for Sephora in LA told her that she would be in San Francisco where Sephora's headquarters were the next week, even though she technically wasn't, and managed to land that first meeting that really ultimately led to her being ranged before she'd even launched. This was when I first met um, someone from Sephora and Anna, you were there. We were I together. was there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, In LA and yeah. at this, um, this event and knew that there was a Sephora VP and I really wanted to try and get in front of her and so... I managed to corner her and was like, hey, I'm launching this brand. Like, what advice do you have for me to get a meeting with a hair care buyer? And she was like, well, do you have samples? And I was like, oh, I have some really early samples and I have a a deck. And she was like, great, well, send it to me and here's my card um, and I'll make sure it gets to the right person. And I was like, oh, okay, great. She's like, how easy was that? I'm like, that was really too easy. But I also <laughs> said to her, I'm like, you know, I'm going to be in San Francisco, which I knew I knew that that's where the Sephora office yeah. was. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to be there. I'm definitely going to be there. So, you know, what's your advice for getting me? <laughs> and once I gave her that card and she was like, send it to me, I was like, oh, crap, I have to book my flight now. So I ended up booking 
really last minute. I think it was Friday. So I booked yeah. to go on Sunday and um, like super early in the morning and fly back like I think Monday night or something ridiculous. And I remember <laughs> the flight was delayed and I was freaking out because I'm like, I need to get to the hotel and finish this deck so I can send it or this is all going to be a waste of time. Um, but once that happened, I sent the deck off and then I got a response the next day on Monday saying I can meet you tomorrow. And I thought, oh my God, crap, I'm going to have to change my flight. Like <laughs> it was actually a, a bus. I was taking a bus. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but because my flight had been delayed, I got refunded my ticket. Oh, I didn't end up having to like lay out any extra money and it was all very serendipitous. I thought, wow, that's why the flight was delayed. So I could get my money back and change my flight. Um, and yeah, I mean, if I hadn't have said that and, and kind of, I guess, pressed the urgency of like, yeah, I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there, um, it may not have happened. Sometimes in those early days, you do really have to do whatever it takes to get in front of the right people, the people who can open doors. But there are also times a little bit later in the journey where you actually decide that you won't do whatever it takes to get the next client, the next customer or the next deal. So Jenna aka Plant Mama, she shares a hilarious story about the time that she realized she no longer would work for anyone. She'd only work for people that were deserving of her time and skills. So this snippet opens with Jenna talking about the different kinds of customers she had at the time, the good ones and the ones that just want to take you for a ride. The first one is the people who come to you who know who you are. They followed you, they've been on your website, they trust you, they're coming to you because they want Plant Mama. That's the person you want. This is the second person. (laughs) (laughs) Enter Person two. Person two. He's obviously like 60 years old, six, between 60 and 70. His mate has said like there's this person that um, does plants, um, call her or his own number. So, and I have this thing now where I don't go out to appointments unless you pay for a consult because time is money, my friend. And I've done so many consults where people can make you think that they're going to hire you and you tell them all your ideas and they never hire you. So there's a rule now where like, I have to gauge straight away if this is going forward or I'm not, this is a waste. Like, and I was driving out to the Tullamarine airport and the irony in this lesson is I didn't charge him. I did it, and that's how this is the irony in the lesson. For some reason, I just didn't try. He called me on the phone and said, oh, hey, we need some plants. Can you come out here? And it was on a really busy day, and I had a coffee with someone beforehand, and she'd said something about the job that I was going to, and I was like, yeah, I didn't charge him beforehand, and it's going to take me, like, at least, like, the whole thing's going to be two hours. Like, I should have charged him for that. She was like, yeah. Anyway, I drive out there, and I walk into this huge, like, like, it's literally like a warehouse for, like, pipes or something. I don't know what it is. And he takes me into this room and he sits me down and he like literally like leans back and like leans back in his chair and he goes, so tell me why I should hire you to do the plan. Oh my God. (laughs) And I literally, and I didn't feel like being like, not, you know, I didn't feel like saying like, do you know who I am? Not like that. But I felt like being like, why am I sitting here trying to convince you Mm. to hire me and, I, and not in a way that I'm like this amazing person, but I just was like, these are not the jobs that I want. I don't want to be in a meeting where I have to be like, you should hire me because I can, all right. Anyway, and as he goes, okay, well, let's walk around the, the, the warehouse, double warehouse. And as we're walking through it, he's like, oh, I want some clients there. And I was like, do you want me to quote every room? Like, cause he was like, I want two plants in here. And I'm like, do you, and when you, for anyone listening at home, like, when you do a quote, you like you spend time on that. 
So, and it might mean that they don't hire you, especially if you, if I've charged him for a consult, I'd be fine spending time quoting because I've charged him for something. You know what I mean? Totally. In this one time that I hadn't charged this guy, I've gone out, I'm literally driven all the way out there. I've been there for like nearly 40 minutes. He's walking me through. And I said, he would go through, I'm not even lying. There'd be as 40 rooms at least. And he's, and he goes, I said, do you want, I was like, okay, I'll just send you a quote of like an overall what it would be. And inside I was like, I don't want to do this job. And he goes, oh, no, 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 I want a quote on each room. And I was just like, you want me to do a quote on each room? And he's like, yeah, that's what I need. I need you to do a quote on each room. And then tell me, like, why you think that we should, like, basically kind of hire you in the same, like, email. Mm. And I remember just, like, literally getting in the car and being like, see you, dickhead. I'm never responding to any email ever again from you. Like, fuck off. Like, I just had this really pound. I literally played. I'm Yeah. Fuck off, you dickhead, literally. I was like, I played I'm Every Woman by Shaka Khan on the highway home. I was just like, I'm never. And you know what? They called me, they emailed me. Can you get the proposal? And I was like, honestly, you can go suck my dick. I am not coming back to convince you to hire me. And honestly, that that whole day was like an absolute bang in the face because I just just had this huge Mm. wake-up call where I was like, I... I'm not doing any of that anymore. There are times in the business building journey when you simply have to grow up, just like Jenna learned how to say no to the wrong clients. We chatted to Bianca Spender on stage at Australian Fashion Week, and she shared the moment that she decided to separate her business from her mum's parent company, Carla Zampatti. This is when she decided to go out on her own. As you'll hear, it was a really massive transition, but it was ultimately the right one for her as it encouraged her to really grow as a founder and a leader in her own right. So we'd been working with each other for uh, a long time, obviously, mm-hmm. by that time. And in that time, I'd set up Bianca Spender. And my sister had come five years into it to be the general manager. And so she was managing both brands. And at this point in time, she left the business and... It was a really interesting time because my mom and I um, were quite, we're always had so much respect for each other's world and also at the same time always saw things quite differently. Probably to the outsider, there was such a connection. And to us, I I mean, you know, it it was all about that, you know, how with family, you always say, oh, well, I, you know, we would always laugh in the office. If there was a rack of clothes, everyone would be go Bianca, Carla, Carla, Bianca, (laughs) Carla, even if they were in the same fabric or anything, it was just, you could immediately tell our worlds. And I think we both, you know, mom and I had talked about, you know, what was this going to look like? And we both just said, okay, it's time. I I needed to, you know, make all of the calls and, you know, learn by mistakes and and be allowed, you know, because I was paying for them to make those mistakes. And I think it's like that moment. I mean, I often coined it like moving out of home um, because, you know, I like physically moved my office out of her office and I, you know, moved, got, you know, I had, shared stuff and I got my stuff and it was really you know you never know what it is to set up a home till you do it and you never know what it is to set up a business until you do it on your own and it was really beautiful because it was a time where you know mom was no longer my boss and I wasn't her employee and I got a mum back and she got a daughter back and we also could support each other in a really different way because we weren't 
you know, we weren't trying to sell, I wasn't trying to sell an idea to her and go, no, but this really is the next big thing. You should be backing it. And she didn't have to evaluate its commercial output. She mm. could just love her daughter's dream and go, well, I'll be interested to see how that works for you commercially. Before that. <laughs> Bianca was really open and honest about the fact that when she went out on her own, she made tons of mistakes. And even though her brand looked really shiny and successful on the outside, they went through some really challenging times. This actually reminds me of a metaphor shared by Silicon Valley exec and CEO of Nextdoor, Sarah Fryer, that a startup is a little bit like Swiss cheese. My husband has this great phrase he calls like all companies Swiss cheese. He's like, on the outside, you all look so good. And inside, there's all these holes. Um, so, <laughs> you know, you walk note. in the door of Square and at the time we're about 200 people. The reader was really the only product we had. It was literally the first reader that dropped yeah. into the headphone jack of the of the phone. And, you know, we were trying to do crazy stuff, like move money around in a highly regulated industry. And, you know, I think the thing that kind of when I go back in time and think through that period, some of it was the great of being, you know, I often say it's good to hire people that actually don't have experience Mm. because they're completely unbounded by reality. And they don't know that the thing that they're trying to do is just ridiculous. (laughs) So they just keep going. Um, And actually, even here in Australia, um, I'm going to meet him for a drink tonight, our country manager here, our first employee in Australia. I remember showing up and it was his living, he literally worked out of his living room. So this whole idea of like corporate that we have in our heads of how like companies work. I mean, the reality of startups is half the time you're working out of a cafe, you're working out of someone's Mm -hmm. living room. Mm -hmm. I mean, now we have more of, um, you know, kind of multidisciplinary use spaces or whatever the word is that you use for those now. Mm. But I mean, even like five, six years ago, those weren't really a thing. And Mm. so there's just a lot of like hacking it together, reaching for kind of this incredible thing and being tenacious. Like you just never let anyone say no to you. And in fact, Jack's whole pitch to me was like, I need you to be the person that says yes. Like CFOs traditionally are the people that say no. Mm -hmm. You need to show me how to say yes. And it can be yes and or yes Yes. But but. <laughs> um, but show us what would help you say yes to something. And, yeah. you know, that began a, an incredible kind of almost seven-year run. Like we took the company from 200 people to over, like when I left, we were 3,500. The company's still growing. The pace of, you know, a very fast thing. Um, took a public. I mean, it really was an amazing ride. Mm. From Swiss cheese to breadcrumbs, our guests are always full of the most useful metaphors and analogies that just stick in your brain. In this next clip with Jane Martino, serial entrepreneur, author, and business leader, she shares that she's a really multi-passionate person with lots of interests, and she's had so many businesses and projects over the years. She follows the breadcrumbs of her curiosity, and this is what leads her to the next thing. I don't think I've still quite found my passion. Like I think it's a lifelong journey, and that's probably always how I've looked at it. So there are things I've always been passionate about. And I like to call them sort of breadcrumbs and I just keep following them a bit like Hansel and Gretel. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I worked out very quickly that I loved and was good at was communication. And so that sort of was my background. I studied that at university and then had a couple of, I guess, early career starts where I worked in Australian-born entrepreneurial sort of businesses in both fashion and beauty. And I had mentors and I saw them living out what I thought would be good for me as well. So I had great people around me to inspire me, 
And then I had an opportunity to work in the property industry and had a number of, of people within that industry approach me and ask, did I consult? And that was really the the thing that allowed me to make the leap is that, okay, I've actually, people have seen my work and it's got that recognition. I had the level of confidence or actually I probably call it naivety and confidence at 25. <laughs> so I had that beautiful, you know, the confidence of people seeing my work and thinking, yep, I think I could have a couple of clients here that could get me started. But I also honestly at 25 thought, well, why wouldn't it work? I actually didn't even consider the possibility of failure. And now I often talk to people about this. I think about ideas I have or things I might want to do and think about failure far more than I did 20 years ago. So, um, yeah, again, it was the coming together of all those beautiful serendipitous things Um, and also the fact that a year or so prior to that, I'd been at mum and dad's and there was this old, huge thesaurus um, that was in dad's study and it just happened to be open one day when I sort of was visiting and I walked in there and I looked down and, and the word undertow was in the thesaurus. And I thought, oh, God, that's a, such a beautiful word. Uh, wouldn't that be a great name for a business? Because it's all about, you know, just going about your work and the, the current from underneath is just stronger than anything that's on top. And, you know, the idea of being just confident and strong and powerful by doing the work and putting it out into the world really appealed to me. So that's also, I had that in the background and then I had the interest from a few people and that was all I needed. I love that you said that you feel like passion is a lifelong journey because I think sometimes we can feel the pressure of having to discover our passion and having to build a business that aligns with our passion. And there's a lot of pressure that comes with that. And I think you have so many different business interests. You've got a very diverse kind of portfolio of interests. You're on you know, many boards and you've invested in many businesses. And I think that that's a reflection of you know, lots of different passions. How do you manage all of those different interests and how do you manage your time being involved in so many different things? Yeah, I get asked this a lot. Firstly, I think everything is a lifelong journey, not just passion. So if you look at life that way, then you can also look at if things spark your curiosity and you connect with them and you'd like to bring them into your life, then it's also okay that if over time that doesn't work, you can let it go. So Mm. the idea, when I talk to people, a lot of people think I need to complete this before I can do that or I need to stop this before I can start that. Or if I do this and this, will I be too busy? Will I not have enough time? And it's all of those thoughts of things actually we don't even know the answer to and probably won't until we do them that stop people from doing things. So I guess I've always had the philosophy that I, if I'm interested and it sparks my curiosity, I will say yes. Um, I'm very strong and it's easy for me to also say no, which is something I've worked on and have been continually getting better at. But, um, you know, the minute that it doesn't work for me, my family, I guess what, you know, the direction that I'm heading, it's also okay to, to let something go. To wrap up our 100th episode, we had to leave you with our favourite chat of all time, artist CJ Hendry. She is a shining example of following her curiosity and her creativity 
not giving a fuck about what people think and forging her own path. How much does it cost to put on a show? It, it can vary, but there's so many things that you take into account for a show, right? Press night where you need drinks and food for 100, 200 people. So this is all press. Like the New York Times will come, this person, this art critic, whatever. So there's all these people will come. Then you need an opening night for all your mates. So that's where 500, 1,000 people come. So you need drinks for all that. You need to rent the space. You need to build out the space, build a house, buy the furniture, whatever it might be. You need security for the time the show's open. You need to pay for staff. You need to pay for who knows what. So... In all honesty, going into shows, you're looking at almost half a million dollars down just to put on a show. It's fucked up, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm kind of... uh, I don't think you fully see a return (laughs) because, because honestly, I could sell the works without even doing the show. In all honesty, yeah. I could sell, like we could, we sell the works two months, two, not two months, two weeks mm. to a month prior to the show even opening. So the collectors don't even know what the show is that they're buying yeah. into. So I don't even need to do that. That's what's so fucking crazy. And why do I do it? I truly am playing a long game. Yeah. I really mm-hmm. believe that. And it's funny because people have dubbed me as an Instagram artist. I'm like, yeah, cool, I'll cop it. Who gives a shit? Like, call me what you want. I truly don't care. But I also know I'm so invested in my work. I'm so invested in the idea and the vision that I want to get across. I'm almost like all or nothing. I'm like, I actually don't care what it takes to create. Mm. Just build it. And it's so hard because, like, my husband, Lewis, and, like, Elsa, my assistant, like, sometimes they sit there like, CJ, like, please stop. Like, please, at some point, please stop. Like, you're going to bankrupt us. I'm like, fuck yeah, I will. Like, I I almost don't care because I'm like, I just want the idea to get there. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening over the years. Thank you so much for all of your support. We hope you love this episode. To learn more about Lady Brains, head over to ladybrains.com and come and follow us on Instagram, lady.brains. 